Hebrews chapter 7, begin with verse number 1. Hebrews 7, beginning with verse number 1. And the Bible says, Therefore this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi who receives tithes paid tithes. That's a lot of tithes in that little bit of span there. But he, and it's hard to say this morning for some reason, who, who paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed to Necessity, there is also a change of the law, for he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment but according to the power of an endless life for he testifies you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek for on the one hand there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness for the law made nothing perfect on the other hand there is the bringing in of a better hope through whom we draw near to God And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety or a guarantee of a better covenant. And there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he, because he continues Forever has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. God, thank you again for the scripture. Thank you for its uh, truth. And thank you for how it shows us you and your ways and helps us to know how to live. And I pray that your spirit will bless and uh, work among us in the ways that you alone can to uncover uh, truth and reveal it and to uh, help us to live by faith in you and we pray that you'll speak in Jesus name amen the uh, I titled the message paradigm shift because I think it helps you understand Hebrews uh, to think of it as for the people that were part of this uh, original audience a paradigm shift they were experiencing as it says there a new and different way. For them, they had followed Christ, or they had uh, been religious people, but they had not uh, known Christ in this way. The, the audience is Jewish Christians. 
they were uh, living in a huge for them transition, uh, a time where they had to accept some ideas that would have been alien and really blasphemous. You remember how that uh, often when Jesus was uh, speaking and he was describing his own uh, personality and identity, that they would say blasphemous things about him because they said this, you know, uh, you're, you're demonic to say such things. And, and yet Jesus is showing us God, but for the people that heard him in the first century, it, it had to sound like blasphemy to them, the things that Jesus was saying about himself. And if it weren't for the fact that it was accompanied by the deeds that uh, would identify him as, as God. So when we read the Bible, we talked about this at our men's Bible study uh, on Man, at Man Church, like not this past time, but the one before. And we talked about gaps. When you read the Bible, there are gaps that you have to think about. And one is this historical gap. For us, we have a completed Bible. In fact, I have my completed Bible today. I'm so happy I got my uh, recovered Bible back and enjoying it very much. But it, it is a completed account of what happened in the first century among those people who believed. But for them, they were living in the middle of it. It was a new way of thinking about some very important uh, spiritual ideas. Now think about it for yourself. How difficult is it for you, for someone to convince you to uh, take possession of a religious thought that's alien to the current convictions that you have? I mean, for us, we would say, no way. You know, you're never going to convince me that the things that we have are not correct. And that's true and correct for us. But for them, there were ideas that they needed to embrace. They needed an openness regarding who Jesus was. And so when the writer in Hebrews is, is thinking by the Holy Spirit, he is addressing a group of people who needed a bunch of blanks filled in. They needed to know that, okay, Jesus, who you're asking me to put my faith in, is actually a continuation of what God was already doing, just like we sang about in that last song. You know, it wasn't that this was a brand new thing. In some ways it was. But at the same time, it was a continuation of what God had begun to do through Abraham and through their forefathers. And so it, it is a paradigm shift, and it required some explanation. I read uh, this week that some scholars believe that when you read he, uh, Hebrews, it was a sermon, a single sermon. So I thought, well, today for me to take on chapter 7 in its entirety is a lot, but apparently some people say, well, to begin with, this was just one big sermon. So I don't know how long that would have taken, probably longer than you know, it will take this morning, I would imagine. But it was a sermon given to explain, okay, us religious Jews need some information. We need some data, and we don't have it. And so it, he went to the Old Testament. He went to the text of Scripture, uh, the writer, whoever he was in Hebrews, and he brought out for them this meat that helps them to you know, keep embracing Jesus, keep their confidence in, in Jesus. And so for us, we'll say, well, there are some aspects of their situation that does not mirror ours exactly, except that we're also called to follow Jesus. And when we do that, it is a new and different way. You know, I think about when I first came to faith in Christ, so much of what I was doing was different, was new to me. And so we also have shifts that we'll need to make sometimes and, and adjustments that we're making and so we'll think about that in this passage too. What are the shifts? What are the adjustments that maybe God is calling us to make in our own journey, in our own life? And so in this passage, the first way that the, we see a paradigm shift occurring for them is an unusual one because first off, they had a shift from ancient to even more ancient. That's not how paradigm shifts work. They don't go from ancient to more ancient. They, usually we think, okay, well, we, we have stopped riding in horse and buggies and now we're in cars and airplanes and trains and all those kinds of things. That's movement forward. But for them, the paradigm shift was from ancient to even more ancient in understanding God's purpose. And so today we're obsessed with the idea 
and you know this does again dovetail with the Bible study last last week or this morning rather that if the more ancient the uh, idea the less useful it is that's what people think now they think moral innovation is more correct you know what whatever people believe morally the fresher the idea the the better that's how society cultural culture generally looks at uh, the idea of truth and what is true but you know when we look at this passage in the bible what we see is that god shows us there's a view of human history that moves from a, a system that was current for them to one that was more ancient that was kind of hidden in the text of scripture and it, that's where we keep getting this repeated idea of melchizedek the order of melchizedek a priesthood that predated the priesthood of levi and aaron so this is all Sunday school stuff, right, that we learned as we read the Bible at some point that there was a order to their worship. There was a priesthood and that the priest was uh, in the line of Levi. So when, if you look at a timeline, Abraham, of course, is considered the father of faith. So following from him, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot the patriarchs, the tribes, the, uh, and Levi was one of the tribes, and Levi was the priestly clan, and so they were to be cared for uh, by the rest of the people. That's why it enters all this language about giving and tithes and stuff, which isn't the focus of what we're uh, talking about at all, but we see that it was a part of their understanding of who these people were. These priests among them were to be supported and blessed, they gave them land, and they cared for them because their primary responsibility was involved in the spiritual leading of God's people. But before that, there was another order. There was another priesthood. So they go from ancient to even more ancient when we're talking about Jesus because as you read this passage, one of the things that it says is that he belongs to the tribe of Judah, and that's not the the tribe that priests come from. So the writer has to fill in that gap for them and for us. And he has to say, this is what's going on. This is why he is a king and he is a priest, and yet he doesn't follow. It doesn't follow that he was part of the tribe of Levi. He wasn't a descendant of Aaron. And so the that's the where they the ground that they're covering and that we are too is that the story of Melchizedek, when we read about it, and this is kind of the end of it here in Hebrews, that, but it, it covers this, what I would say, it outlines an elaborate, intricate, meaningful, historic tapestry. Sometimes we look at history and we think it's just a random sequence of things that have happened, but when you read this story, what you see is that there was a, a reason and a purpose that God had interwoven so that even they could go back and before this, uh, before Levi, before Israel, before the, the patriarchs, God already had done something that was going to impact everything. So that history wasn't random at all. It was purposeful. And for God to make it intersect in the way that it did was a miracle. It was a miracle of God's forethought and God's vision. And God's showing us, hey, your faith can be sustained by historically accurate, believable processes and, and issues. And so that's why this is important for us to see that when we look at this, you know, kind of minor story, it would seem like in Scripture, after all, it's not minor at all. It's major and amazing. And so when we think about Melchizedek, it, it shows us some things about him. But the thing we said before is he is a type of Christ. He's a type of Christ. That means that Christ is the antitype, they would say. So it, it, it's not about Melchizedek. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. But when we look at him, we say, ah, here's the amazing purpose of God revealed in this person, revealed in Melchizedek, who historically existed to, uh, for the purpose of being a priest, but to show us there, there was a legitimate priesthood in Judah, that a priest could come out of Judah and be considered a legitimate priest. 
So we see already here some of the things. Uh, Melchizedek predates Aaron and the Levites. It says he, twice it says that he was in there in Abraham's loins, which just means he was going to be a descendant of Abraham. The Levites were, but they hadn't been born yet. But they were there in potential. In, in eventually, when the history was written, they would say, well, in a couple of hundred years, however long it took, the, the potential that was in Abraham. Now, this is mind-blowing, too, when we think about our own lives and we think about just uh, our families. But the potential was there. It, he just hadn't been born yet. But the fact that he hadn't been born proves that Melchizedek's priesthood, because Aaron honored and blessed and tied to Melchizedek, it's like, okay, well, the Levi was already inside Abraham, demonstrating that he's blessing the one who's greater. That's what the scripture says. But he predated Melchizedek on a historic timeline. Abraham is here, and Melchizedek is here. He's before He's before the descendants, the tribes, the patriarchs. That's what they're actually called in this passage. And they are the sons of, of uh, Jacob, the schemer who God is using in his story too. So Abraham encountered him after rescuing his nephew Lot following the, a battle that happened in, it's described in Genesis chapter 14. So we remember Abraham's nephew Lot, who is mentioned in the New Testament as a just man. He doesn't look like it in the Old Testament. He looks kind of like a, a, a compromiser, right? He, he goes off and he lives. Sodom and Gomorrah are uh, historically for Christians the, the bed of sin, right? It's where people were uh, taking a hard, hard detour away from godliness. And they, they were steeped in sexual immorality. That's the big problem that you see when you read the account there. But... Lot had made a decision to make his home there. When you read about his story, it's a sad and tragic story. But Abraham still loved him, still protected him, still cared for him. And at a point, there is this group of what, they calls them kings, but they were probably more like local nomadic warlords. And one of them, uh, it's interesting to me, uh, if you look in Genesis 14, it's like, Keter, Laomer is one of the guys. Another one, his name is Tidal, King of Nations. It's like he's got this fancy name, but he's really just a local warlord, you know. But all these guys come, and they, the, the leaders, governors, warlords of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah are defeated by the, this other clan or tribe, and they kidnap Lot and they kidnap his family, and they take him away. And Abraham in the text says he he roused about 300-plus soldiers of his own, people that were under Abraham, so we know he was wealthy and accomplished. And he goes and he gets his nephew Lot back. And this is the history that's being talked about in this passage. So he goes out and he rescues Lot, saves him, and... Along the way, as Abraham is coming back, out comes to him Melchizedek. Melchizedek comes to him and he is called the king of Salem, king of peace, king of righteousness. So the description given about Melchizedek prefigures Jesus, king of righteousness, king of peace, prince of peace, we, we would refer to Jesus And in all of that, when he encounters Melchizedek, who comes from nowhere, we don't know anything about him, he comes out and, and Abraham meets him, and Abraham gives a tenth of the spoil to Melchizedek. That's what it says in Genesis 14, 18. It's what it says in this passage that he tithed, basically gave him a tenth of the spoils because when he went and rescued Lot, he got all of the possessions. The booty is the way it puts it. The, the loot, was he recovers it, and he gives a tenth of that to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, it says, brings to Abraham, if you read the text, 
bread and wine. Bread and wine. What is that? That's kind of an unusual thing. But, you know, we can see in all of it, it's predicting. It's foretelling things about God's purpose. So for us, we would say that's communion, right? That's God showing us the body, the blood, and doing it thousands of years ago. And, you know, even a thousand years, you know, thousands of years before the coming of of Christ himself, the historic Jesus. So he meets Abraham at at that point. He offers uh, this bread and wine prefiguring the Lord's table for us, even before there was a Calvary. He legitimizes Jesus' authority as priest and according to the order of Melchizedek. So he shows us, yeah, it's actually fine for Jesus to be priest because there's already this ancient priesthood that goes back before Levi. Figuratively, he illustrates Jesus' eternal nature. He has no genealogy. There's not one listed in the Bible. Where did Melchizedek come from? Who were his parents? We don't know. Where was he born? We don't know. It doesn't tell us anything about that. When did he die? We don't know. It doesn't tell you anything about that. And the reason is because even though, to my understanding, he's just a historic person. Sometimes people will say, well, maybe he was an archangel or maybe he was a, you know, something other than just a person. But I don't think you really make the case from that from the Bible. But from the Bible we see that it just doesn't tell us a lot of stuff so that when we get to Jesus and we see the priesthood according to Melchizedek, we understand that it's a picture of Jesus' eternal nature. You, don't, you can't go back and find Jesus' family. He's eternal. He's always existed. Of course, we, we find his earthly family as Jesus the Christ, Jesus the historic person, the human God-man. But before that, there's no beginning to his history. There's nowhere out there that we go and we find, oh, here's... No, in, in the beginning, that is before... Uh, in, in history, as, as far back as you go, you encounter Jesus' eternal God. So Melchizedek is giving us that image even though for him, he probably did have parents. We just don't know who they are. He, he had a genealogy, but Jesus doesn't. And so it's not mentioned to give us an accurate idea of what kind of priest Jesus is. That's why it's a type. That's what's meant by that. And like someone pointed out, a commentator, it's not that Jesus is uh, portrayed after the pattern of Melchizedek. It's the other way around. Melchizedek uh, shows us Jesus, but the pattern is, is there for our benefit. Abraham treats him with deference when he encounters him. He ties to him. He, he is, uh, blessing is pronounced on him. He's called, uh, Melchizedek calls Abraham possessor of heaven and earth, and he pronounces a blessing on him. And so, but Abraham treats him with deference. He treats him as greater than himself he tithes to him and 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 so just continues to give us this picture of how God is purposing salvation and how God is fulfilling all things in Christ it points out the imperfection of the Levitical priesthood it's mentioned in the passage that we just read if there was perfection in the uh, Levitical priesthood, why was it necessary that it would be another order according to the order of Melchizedek? That's what the writer gives us and the Holy Spirit does to make clear to us that there, this order was necessary because the previous one, the less ancient but still ancient one, is imperfect. Why? Because the only people they had to choose from to make it happen were people like us. Fallen human, imperfect. They could never, ever, through the system that they were committed to, have out here something happen that would bring an end to it. It was ongoing because it involved fallen humans dealing with fallen humans. So those priests were imperfect. They would never get a perfect outcome until the perfect priest came. So logically, with this necessary change, the law had to change as well. That's uh, what the scripture says in verse number 12. It was because it was 
predicated on a system that was depended on a continuous succession of mortal, flawed priests. They had to make sacrifice, not only for the people, but also for themselves, because they also were flawed. And the sacrifices that they uh, made, they needed. It wasn't that they were just like representing the people. They were involved in the same way that the people were. When they made the blood sacrifice, it was that blood was shed for them too, for that priest. So that's the first paradigm shift that the writer makes plain to them is like we're talking about going from an ancient system to an even more ancient system in the order of Melchizedek. But secondly in the passage, this shift is from an incomplete arrangement to a permanent one in verses 13 through 19. The fact that we, we keep having Psalm 110.4 cited over and over again, calling for a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. When were the Psalms written? Before or after Abraham? If, I, if you had to take a test, well, they were written after Abraham, right? Psalms came after Abraham because they came mostly through David. So the psalm writer that talked about an order according to Melchizedek would have written about that well after there was a Levitical priesthood. But he reads in the scripture, in the Pentateuch, in the book of Genesis, that there's this, there's this other order. So he's talking about this in the Psalms, Psalm 110 verse 4, and it, it keeps being cited by the writer in Hebrews to say, there is another order, and Jesus is of that order, the order of Melchizedek. So it, it, it's necessary because the first system was not fully effective or final. We couldn't call it defective, could we? Because it wasn't defective. It was effective for what it was doing, but it was not final. It was incomplete. It was imperfect. So it served a historical purpose, but it was incomplete. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, In the fullness, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born under the law. Born of a, a virgin, born of a woman. So what we see is there was a perfect intersection in human history when God says now. The fullness of time has come. It's time for what was incomplete to be over and now. At this perfect intersection, as God determined it, I'm not sure exactly what all went into that. A lot of things. But God says now. Whatever year it was, scholars debate. Uh, 2 AD, whenever it was that Jesus came, God says, this is the fullness of time. The, now, this old order is going to pass away. It's obsolete. It served a purpose, but now it's over. And the Mosaic law was imperfect because it was administered, as we say, by imperfect people. It presented the coming realities that Jesus would fulfill, and an important aspect of viewing life in a new and different way is openness. And that's what he's trying to create in this letter and this message to them is openness. So we need that for growth. Now we would say all the same things that this writer said are exactly true and final about who Jesus is. But they were working through that. Accepting change that affects your core religious beliefs requires a willingness to go to the text and see if they're Good reasons to do so. You remember in the book of Acts, the Bereans, it's, what did it say about the Berean uh, believers? Like the gospel was going out, and it said the Bereans looked at the scripture daily to see whether those things were so. They went to the text. They were in the scripture. They read it. They understood it. And they compared what they were hearing versus what it was saying. And so that's a good model for people, is to be like the Bereans who... They looked at the text. They went to the text to see what it said and whether it, it could be defended or not, which, after all, is uh, what I hope all of us want. I don't want to follow a belief system that can't be defended. And the purpose of Hebrews is to, is to show us, hey, what you believe is defendable. It has these markers of historic accuracy and truth about it, and it shows... Uh, us that we can depend on the things that we come and listen to and think about week after week. You, some of you probably, like when I first came to faith in Christ, I listened to 
uh, Christian Radio in Augusta a lot, Jay Vernon McGee. You guys uh, remember Jay Vernon McGee, that was Texas draw, if you ever listened to him. He said, if um, you've got a lion in the backyard, you don't have to protect it from the feral cats in the neighborhood. Right? If you had a lion, you wouldn't worry about the kitty cats in the neighborhood coming mess with your lion. He says, that's what the Bible is. It's like the lion that you've got in your backyard. It stands up under scrutiny and defense. It's defensible. And it, it holds up. And, and so what we should really do is continually go to the text ourselves. Go to it. See what it says. Read it. Immerse ourselves in it. Just so that when we read something that, that we know, okay, well, the, the world is sounding off all kind of new things, but God doesn't change. God's already spoken in respect to that. And God uh, is, can be believed. The Bible is the lion. And Hebrews keeps making the case that Jesus is everything that the Old Covenant predicted and presented. And the Old Covenant was helpful but incomplete. It's not that it wasn't helpful. It's not that it wasn't accurate. It, it was to a point, but then it was superseded. It was surpassed in the fullness of time. When, when Messiah came in the first century, when Jesus arrived. And so... Jesus' fitness is not based on the tribe he descended from, but his uniqueness as the eternal, always existing king. What preceded him were but signposts. He's the destination. So all, all of the things that foreshadowed him were signposts, but he is the destination. He's where God was going. So the former commandment, the scripture says in verse 18, was marked by weakness and unprofitableness. Here's how we think about that. I read in the Psalms in a few uh, locations it, it asks this question. It says, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who, who, the answer is given, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? The one with clean hands and a pure heart. I read that and I'm shut down. I don't have clean hands. I don't have a pure heart. I can't ascend to the Lord's hill. I've heard messages given at times that made that sound like moralism, like there's somebody out there. Guess what? There is no third category of people. There are only two categories, one category really to start with, and that is people that are separated from God by sin. As the Psalms also say, there's none righteous, not even one. Romans chapter 3, when you read about it, says it gives a description of people that's not flattering. It talks about how we go astray with our lips and how we go astray in our lives. And uh, we, you know, sin, the de definition that you get is transgression. Uh, but you've probably heard the illustration that it's like if I drew back an arrow and I shot at the target and I missed, that's sin. It's like I missed the mark. I transgress. I'm, I go places I shouldn't. So, and I'm not up here on the platform being the only one. Everybody in this room, that's you. I like how Andrew Peterson has this song that talk, it quotes that psalm that says, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? But the next phrase in the psalm is, you know, nobody, basically. None of us, the only person who can ascend the hill is the one that ascended the hill at Calvary. He went up the hill. And he was the one that, the, the just for the unjust, he's the only one that could ascend the hill. Now, I'm not saying that it's not important to live a, an ethical life and a life of obedience and uh, pleasing God. I'm just saying we haven't. We don't have that to offer as a pathway to God. And so Jesus shows us that the gospel isn't for well people, but for sick people. You remember that he went and ate at Levi's home, and while he was there he was criticized for sitting down and having a meal with these wretched sinners, and that's when he said, I didn't come to call well, uh, sick or well people, but sick people, and he, what he was really saying is there are only sick people, and so he had a meal with these people because they were the people that were getting well. The only people that get well are the ones that say I'm sick. That's the only people that get well. So the, in this part of the scripture, we see that he Jesus becomes because the law is weak and unprofitable it can only get us to a certain place and that's a place of conviction and awareness but we needed 
something else to make it complete, and that something was a someone. So the third paradigm shift you see in this passage is from flawed facilitator uh, facilitators to a perfect savior in verses 20 through 28. So the rest of this passage is just like beautiful descriptions of Jesus. I like it. Uh, he's the perfect savior. All the f- people that came before were imperfect facilitators. They were part of a religious process that helped because it pointed us to what was coming, but now we get down to who Jesus is. And here's what the scripture says about him in the rest of the passage. uh, One, he is sworn by God to be high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He fulfilled that ancient, more ancient description of the coming priest. It was satisfied in him. He is the assurance in verse 22 of a better covenant. The guarantee. Okay, we've been talking to realtors for quite a while. We'll have some news about that soon. But uh, when you get involved in the conversation about selling, you you have to have earnest, earnest money. That means that you put it up, you sign a check, you write it, some other party holds it for you. But it means this transaction is real. This is actually, you know, going to take place. Jesus is called the, the guarantee. He, he is the evidence that a transaction has, for, in our case, actually happened in the uh, new covenant. The new covenant is in his blood. The new covenant is the cross of Calvary. The new, new covenant is his sacrifice for us. So he's the assurance is the idea, guarantee of a better covenant. Resurrected, verse 23, shows us and he will never die again and he is not in need of successor. There will be no other high priest. If anyone else came along and claimed to be a high priest, we would say we reject you because Jesus is the last and final high priest and the real high priest. The end of the need for another priest order of priest that shows us in verse 24. Jesus is the end of the need for any other priest or order of priests. He is able, the scripture says, to save to the uttermost those who come to him. Verse 25. Don't you love that promise? Able to save to the uttermost. Sometimes we wrestle with the idea of what salvation actually means. Is it something that a person could forfeit or lose through some behavior? What is salvation? Well, the Bible talks about Jesus is saving to the uttermost. It's, I'm glad that I don't have to wake up every day wondering whether my enough is enough. It, his enough is enough. And so he rescues and he saves us to the uttermost, to the full extent needed, is the description of Jesus. He is the one through whom we must come to God, the scripture says there. There is no other way. Uh, there are a lot of religious systems, but the Bible says that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So in verse 25, it shows us we've got to come to God through him. In verse 25 also, the one ever uh, more alive who continually intercedes for us. And we think about what that means. He is, he is the one who is our advocate. Our, he makes the appeal on the basis of his salvation that we're, we belong to him. So when we think about him as an intercessor for us, he, it's the same idea as Jesus being mediator. He's the mediator. He's the one that connects us and brings us to God through his perfect uh, sacrifice. The, uh, the scripture says in verse 26, he's fitting for us. In other words, he's the savior we need. He's the savior we need. All, uh, the rest of this passage in part talks about how Jesus is perfect, sinless, blameless. It, it, you know, the sacrifice that they made had to be without blemish. And Jesus was morally the completion of that idea. He was without blemish. He's the only human that ever lived that never did anything outside of God's will. The only human that ever lived that never did anything outside of God's will. And so was appropriate as a sacrifice, fitting the Savior we needed. Human, but perfect, sinless, blameless. It calls him harmless in the New King James. I like that phrase associated with Jesus. Harmless, even though we would say harmless sounds like a weak word. 
And the real word is uh, the word not bad, or the phrase not bad, <laughs> which doesn't translate very well either. But the word in the Greek was the opposite of bad, harmless. He, he, he doesn't intend harm to you. He t- intends good for us. He intends to bless and to help. I like that idea. He's undefiled. It says in verse 26 also, righteous king of righteousness. He's higher, it says in uh, the scripture also, higher than the heavens. What does that mean? Well, I think it means he's distinct. We know that he's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, yet not far removed. He's lofty, but not aloof. There's a difference between being lofty and aloof. It's in, it's in the disposition or the attitude toward us. He, he's lofty. We worship him. He's not aloof. He invites us to come near. He, he invites us to come to him. Come to me, all you who labor. Heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He is a king. He deserves to be worshipped. He lets you come near. I think that's the idea. He's the priest as well as the offering we see in verse 27. And he's perfect in his role as sacrifice, his role as servant, his role in, in his uh, rule as, as king. He is the priest and he is the king. So in closing, as we come to a time of commitment today, what paradigm shifts do you need to make? You think about your own life. Maybe it's the idea that history is nothing more than a random set of events rather than a purpose strategic handiwork of God given because he is personal and he cares. You know, sometimes that's the way people view the world. They think, yeah, we're just kind of like bumping along event to event. There's no overarching purpose. But the Bible says, no, if you look closely, what you actually see is that God intended, created, and uh, foresaw and worked out um, a solution for us so that your life can have meaning. We, we, our life could have meaning. So maybe the shift for some someone might be to say, I need to view the world that way. Maybe the shift you need to make is the, is the presupposition or the thought that people have that all recent moral innovations are superior and to be trusted more than the ancient patterns that appear in the Bible. God doesn't change. Nothing is happening in the modern world, which the modern world is a drop in the bucket historically in in God's thinking because a thousand years is a single day when they're past in God. God's not in time, and God's not surprised by anything happening in time. God didn't read the newspaper, go on the internet, and go, oh, yeah, I can't believe this is happening. He's not, he, it may be uh, an affront to God, but God's not shocked when he reads about the nation. But, you know, sometimes for us it is shocking, and we think oh, all we hear around us is this racket from the world about how we need to adjust, and it's the same kind of thing we were talking about earlier. You've got to adjust, you've got to buckle. But no, what we see is that there is a God who's ancient and he is the source of truth and everything came from him and is going to him also. And so like we saw a few weeks ago, keep to the old paths. That's what Jeremiah said, keep to the old paths. For some people, the paradigm shift is answering the question, who's the king in your life? Who rules your thoughts and your priorities? Is it God most high? That's who, how Melchizedek and Abraham described God. They called him God most high. King. Who establishes your priorities? Who decides for, for you the direction and the decisions? And you know, the scripture says, trust in the Lord with all your, uh, with all your heart and Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll direct your path. We acknowledge who he is. And that's the other shift I think you see in Hebrews is, is that sometimes what, where we need to get to is a place of having a humble willingness to listen. A humble willingness to listen. There's nothing more important than us being able to listen to God 
and adjust our lives to what he shows us. True learning is more than information, like we've said. It's, it's taking information into your person and, and adjusting our life according to what God shows us. So it's a journey, and none of us have arrived. So when I think about being a disciple and a learner, how do I know you haven't arrived? Because you're still uh, above ground. That's how I know. Right? As long as you're above ground, you're in the process of learning and growing and adjusting and repenting and becoming the person that God purposes for you to be. Well, we're going to have a time of prayer, and uh, this is also our time of commitment. It may be as we uh, conclude our service today, there's a decision uh, that you need to make in response to how the Spirit of God is speaking to you, and if so, invite you to do so. I'll uh, stand here for a few moments during this time, and uh, also just be aware that, like, I serve this congregation uh, to, to help and, and to be a blessing and uh, so it's not just in these few moments that we'll have, but all the time, me and the elders that God has given to this congregation are available to, to serve and help. And so conversations are available after now. But if you have a decision to make now, I encourage you to listen to God. Let's stand together and we'll uh, pray and, and um, respond to the Lord. Father, thank you so much for the Bible and how it shows us that you have a a perfect understanding of what people need and that you had a perfect purpose that you were working out even among all our fallen mess God you never uh, deviated you never changed and you don't have to so I pray that uh, for us who do need to change you'll give us the humility and the willingness to obey you I pray you'll help these truths to sink into our heart help us to align our life to you to obey you as faithful children. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.